Steve. Thank you so much. It's good to be back with you. Uh, enjoying worship, enjoying this run up to Christmas. Okay, I'm going to speak to you from the book of Galatians, Paul's letter to the Galatians. Just reading a few verses in chapter 4. Chapter 4 of Galatians. And reading from verse 4. Uh, I'm reading from the NASB. It may vary if you've got a different translation, but it won't be very different. Right, so Galatians 4 and verse 4. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you're sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So therefore you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Okay, let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for the joy of singing about this beautiful name, this wonderful, powerful name. We thank you that this name ever broke in on our lives, Lord. We acknowledge we, we didn't know you, we weren't aware of you, but we thank you that, Lord, you broke in and showed us what a wonderful name that is. We thank you, you put value where we had no value before, meaning and purpose. And Father, we bless you for the appetite you put in our hearts to gather in your name. And we thank you for your desire to feed us, to speak to us. Holy Spirit, would you come right now, please? Come and rest upon us. Please come and lead us into truth. Come and make Jesus real to us. Help us to see what he has accomplished for us, Father. We ask it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So this is one of the classic passages or statements in the New Testament about the birth of Jesus. We come up to Christmas, uh, very aware of its kind of being overcome by commercial uh, preoccupation, all kinds of things, getting the tree, get the turkey, get the Christmas crackers, get all sorts of stuff that's got very little to do with Christmas. And even actually when we come to look at Jesus, we can be rather sort of shut into this little baby, uh, you know, and the stable and the manger and the donkeys and all this stuff. And of course that's biblical, that's the story. But in this passage you get the bigger view. In this passage we see from a much grander scale what God was doing in sending his son. Here it says God sent his son. God, when the time had fully come, right? When the time had fully come. It's an interesting statement. When the time had come to fullness, when it was the appropriate moment in God's program. It's good for us to just ponder that for a moment, that God is running things, okay? We can get that feeling in our generation that things are coming, uh, running away. They're kind of running away from us. What on earth is going on? Uh, you know, we hear about the climate change. We hear the ozone layers breaking up. We, we hear about what's going to happen uh, to, to the very world we live in. We hear of an economic pressure that around the world, all kinds of economic pressures. We see moral decline. In our country, it's kind of insecure. What on earth is going on? And you can get that feeling that, you know, Christmas is just a moment to step into a, a bubble of unreality because out there is a pretty scary world. 
And it's all kind of out of hand, and what on earth's going on? And, it, and we wonder what our children are going to live through, what are our grandchildren going to inherit? The, the world's in a, a mess, and it can seem like that. And when you read verses like this, when the time had fully come, you kind of stand back and think, oh, I see, so God's got times. God's running things. God is sovereign. When God had prepared the scene brilliantly, and, and in his moment, it's not that he suddenly thought, oh, perhaps I could get in now. Uh, well, here's a moment. No, 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 it's not saying that. It's saying when God and his great sovereign purpose came to this great historic moment that was going to number the years. You know, we live in 2017 years since life. Uh, the world history is going to be turning on this historic moment. In this historic moment, when the time had fully come, God stepped in. Now you could say, well, what were the things? Well, there are some things we could notice that Jesus came in a time when there was a, a language that was pretty common to the whole world. Nearly the whole world spoke Greek. All these middle Mediterranean countries where the gospel would first break out, they had a common language. Also, they had what they called the Pax Romana, which meant that Rome had smashed every nation into subjection, had built Roman roads. You didn't have to get through all kinds of customs controls. You could just pull, and these early apostles could go from nation to nation. There would be a common language. Actually, the Roman soldiers kind of kept the peace, as they called it. Peace was like you're crushed under their authority. And actually, that helped in the advance of the breakthrough of the gospel. And then there's what's called the diaspora. What's that? Well, Jewish people had been scattered uh, when, when, when Rome came breaking in. And even before that, uh, the Jewish people had scattered out uh, from their homeland. But when they got into these various different nations, they didn't want to lose their identity. And so they may be in this nation or that nation, but they built synagogues. Synagogues were only built because they were scattered. When they were really enjoying the favor and mercy of God, they had the temple in Jerusalem. They didn't have synagogues. When they got scattered, they thought, we must, uh, must retain our identity. And in Israel and elsewhere, they built synagogues, which were places where they kept their holy writings, their scriptures. And when Paul started on his missionary journeys, nearly always he would go first to the synagogue. It's like, I've got a, I've got a foothold. It's like we plant churches these days in New Frontiers and other movements. You find, where do we start? How can we find somebody to start with? And we're involved in all kinds of church plants all over the world. Well, Paul, when he went to a town, he knew there'd be a certain number of people who honored the Bible, who knew the Bible. And he would start there, sometimes with some success, sometimes with reaction. But it gave him a foothold. It gave him a beginning place. And God had set the scene, actually. And some of what was the scene looked pretty horrific. I mean, the Greeks with such power, the Romans with such power, the diaspora, this all looks negative. God is preparing for his moment when he's going to interrupt world history in this breathtaking way, in the fullness of time. Beloved, we just need to be comforted by the fact in our generation, as we come up to a new year and the, all the uncertainties, God is ruling, God has his moments, God has his days. We have a day we've been singing about when Jesus will come again. He's running all things. And that brings terrific peace to my heart, I hope it does to yours, that the Lord is reigning. He is supreme. In the fullness of time, in God's moment, he made this amazing step. In the fullness of time, time, God sent forth 
his son. That is absolutely stunning. It doesn't say he sent an angel. It doesn't say he, he sent a prophet. We've seen that many times in the Old Testament. God spoke many times in the Old Testament. All sorts of ways. Suddenly a bush is full of fire. Moses goes to investigate and a voice speaks to him. God speaks to him. I mean, God is speaking, been speaking down through the centuries. He's been uh, calling prophets, engaging with them, sending them on his behalf. But now he sends his son. This is breathtaking. This is unbelievably wonderful. God, in these last days, in, when the time had fully come, he sent forth his son. Now, this is a breathtaking commitment. This is not a fleeting visit. In the Old Testament, you get what you call theophanies. You get moments where suddenly there's this other figure. You remember Daniel and, and, and his three friends, they're in the burning fire, and, the, and, and, and yet the fire's not consuming them. And, and they can see these three are walking around, and another one, like a son of the gods, is among them. They get these, these fleeting visits in the Bible where Jesus, it seems it's Jesus, appears, like he comes and, and moments, come sometimes called the angel of the Lord, these, these fleeting visits when, when Jesus comes into the scene. But now we're not talking about a fleeting visit, now we're talking about something phenomenal. The word became flesh. He was with God and was God, he became flesh. He, he was born, born, of, a God is born of a woman. It really does need us to step back at this busy, hectic Christmas season and reflect upon the wonder of it. He became flesh. He was taking human form. He became man. And listen, this is not fleeting. He became a man. And, and when he rose from the dead, he is this God-man. He's very God. He's very man. He's not 50% God and 50% man. This is a breathtaking mystery. He is truly God, truly man. And he's carried that up into heaven. When he ascended, he rose from the dead. He walked the earth. He appeared over some 40 days to the apostles and others. And then he was lifted up into heaven. And there's now a man in the heavens. Jesus took, he became flesh. He didn't just visit for a while. He didn't just put a mask on for a moment. He changed. He became flesh. He's truly God. He became flesh. And he now in the heavens, that same Jesus, this same Jesus will come back. The man who is God. When God became king, N.T. Wright just written this great book, when God became king, he came amongst us. So he was born of a woman, born under the law, we read, that he might redeem those who were under the law. So we need to look at this in Galatians a little different. We know from the gospel stories, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sin. All right, it's a kind of classic. He, you call his name Jesus, he shall save his people from, his sin, from your sin. But here it doesn't say that. It says he was born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. All right, so this particular passage isn't about being saved from sin, being cleansed, forgiven, washed, although that's wonderfully true. This passage is about something else. It's to change our status. Jesus came under the law 
to redeem us from under the law that we might become children of God. Jesus came to change our standing before God. Now, just before we go any further, we just need to remember what this book of Galatians is all about. Why did Paul write this letter to the Galatians? And we've just read just a few verses from the letter to the Galatians. Well, this letter is Paul's angriest letter. All right, he uses some pretty strong language. He says, you've been witched, you've been bewitched, you're forsaking Christ, you're abandoning the gospel. I mean, he's really, really hostile. He's writing, and actually, it's much angrier than Corinthians. And sometimes we think, well, Corinthians is a pretty sad letter because the Corinthian church is up to all kinds of nonsense. They're, they're mishandling spiritual gifts. They're getting drunk at the communion table. There's incest in the church. I mean, the Corinthian church is a horror. But Paul's letter to the Galatians is more, is more serious. It's more serious. He's more angry. He's more concerned. He says, you're falling from grace. You're losing the way completely. Why is he writing like that? What, what's he talking about? Well, what happened at Galatia was this. Paul went to this place. He preached the gospel. Many people got saved. Not only were they saved, it says in chapter 3, the Holy Spirit had been poured out upon them. It says that signs and wonders, healings and miracles were happening. I mean, this is a church that you know, you'd be proud of to be, belong to. The power of God is there. This, these people used to be Gentile pagans. Now God's there in the midst of them. They're doing phenomenal things are happening every day. Extraordinary manifestation of God's presence. And Paul, being an apostle, he's established this church. He's got it started. Then he kind of says, goodbye, I'm on my way. He, he started it off, and that's the nature of apostolic ministry. It starts a new church, then goes and does it again. And, and Paul is moving on to do it somewhere else. And when Paul moves out... The Judaizers move in. Well, who are the Judaizers? Well, they're people who were formerly Jews and are probably now Christian. They've received the gospel, but they're very confused about Old Testament and New Testament. They don't know where one stops and the other starts. And they come into Galatia when Paul's gone. And when they arrive, they're Jewish people and they're saying, hey, this is great. You received our Messiah. Uh, our Bibles, our, our prophets told us that, that the Gentiles would. They, they would accept our Messiah. This Jewish Messiah would be accepted by the nations. Hey, welcome. This is great. You've joined us. Welcome. Congratulations. Um, if you want to really go on with him properly, if you want, you know, if you want to grow and, and be really acceptable to God, there's some things you need to add. There's some missing stuff. You know, okay, so you've trusted the Messiah, um, but uh, if you want to become mature, if you want to be okay, um, you need to keep the Sabbath. You need to not eat that kind of food. Uh, you need to keep the feast days. Uh, you need to be circumcised. And so what they're saying is, look, okay, so you've received Christ, but... Come on, we've known him for centuries. We know what he needs. We know what he requires. He requires circumcision. You have to keep the Sabbath. This is what God requires. And so they say, oh, okay. 
And Paul, if you read Galatians, I've been spending a lot of time in Galatians lately. He says like this, already you are keeping days and dates. They're, they're beginning to yield to this. They're beginning to take on board some of these rules. It looks like they haven't yet been circumcised. They're trying. It's like, come on, make the full step. Make sure you're really in. Embrace these things. Keep the Sabbath. Come on, line up. And Paul, who's away by now, he's in another town, he hears, have you heard what's happening in Galatia? He's outraged. He says, what are you doing? And he said, they preached another gospel to you. And so he writes this very, very angry letter to them. And he wants to explain to them, he's not just furious at what they're doing. He's furious at the teaching that's behind it, which will completely wreck the gospel. And it will turn the gospel into a rule-keeping religion, which it isn't. Hallelujah. And sadly, often the people in our country at the moment, that's what they think Christians are. They're rule-keepers. You know, if you're a Christian, you're not allowed to do this, and we're against that, and we're not allowed to do that. And that is the image, really. The image is there are a lot of people who not very happy really because lots of stuff they're not allowed to do and that's how it's perceived we've got to keep these rules and sometimes we we pick that up ourselves I mean we're coming up to the end of the year New Year's resolutions I'll try harder I'll read my Bible more I'll pray longer and what we tend to do we live in this world of rules and regulations and we may not be going into I must keep the Sabbath and I must get circumcised or I mustn't eat that kind of food it's like you see the breakthrough was phenomenal these people who had been in the Old Testament, the things you weren't allowed to do, you weren't allowed to eat. Remember the story when Peter saw a sheep coming down from heaven and God said to him, now arise, Peter, kill and eat. He said, I don't eat that sort of food. This is, this is Simon Peter. He said, I don't eat that kind of food. And God says, no, rise, kill and eat. So I don't eat it. And God says to him, what I call clean, don't call unclean. It's like, you mean I can eat pork and go to heaven? Yeah, you can eat pork and go to heaven quicker. It's great. <laughs> See, you're allowed to. And, and there's these things. Where in the Old Testament, there were all things you weren't allowed to do. And in the New Testament, it's completely free. It's changed. There's a liberty. Their, their experience of Jesus is completely different. It's amazingly different. Because grace has come. It's not that God's changed the holiness standard. In fact, he's going to teach us how to live the holy life. But what he's done is changed our relationship with Lord. Jesus, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those like us who were under the law and bring us out into sonship. Right? So Jesus, not just, if I can put it this way, it's not you shall call his name Jesus, he'll cleanse you from your sin. Praise God for that. He's not only cleansing us from our sin, he's bringing us out from under the law so that we can be sons. That's what this passage says. It's a completely different deal. You either live, as Paul will say, as a slave to law, or you'll live as a son to the Father. And it's needs to, we need to understand what Jesus did. He came to release us from the law. Jesus stepped into the scene, born under the law. So Jesus lived an innocent life. He lived a holy life. He lived under God's law. Although he himself was God... He took on human form and lived under the law. He kept the rules. He kept the law. He was innocent. He said at the end, Satan's coming. He's got nothing on me. 
He had a completely clean conscience. He lived under the law in order to redeem us who were under the law and bring us out. So Jesus had two relationships with the law. One, perfect, spotless obedience. Right? So Jesus, I've come again. Well, you can't, you can't find out. He said at one time publicly, which of you finds fault with me? I couldn't find anything wrong with him. He was absolutely innocent. But when we come to the cross, we read this. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us. That's what God, that's what happened at the cross. At the cross, he became the personification of sin. That's the extraordinary transformation that happened at the cross. Jesus, the innocent one, becomes the embodiment of sin. It's like that is the embodiment of sin, that man hanging on that cross. And that's why cursed, he's cursed by God. It says if we break the law, we're cursed. And Jesus carried the curse of the law. And he died. So he, first of all, was innocent to the law. But on the cross, it's like he became the most guilty person that ever been. And the law was justified, vindicated. The law is exonerated. He dies. He's cursed. And the scripture says we were crucified with him. Hallelujah. We died with Jesus on the cross. That's what Paul says. We have been set free from the full curse of the law. Galatians 2, 19 and 20. Through the law, Paul says, I died to the law. Through the law, what does he mean? The law said, someone's got to die. Jesus said, I'll stand in the place of everybody. I'll carry the full weight. Someone's got to die. I'll die. Someone's got to be cursed. I'll be cursed for the whole lot. I will carry it on the cross. He took the full curse of the law and died. And Paul says, through the law, I died to the law because I'm in Jesus. Because of my identification with Jesus. Because now I'm united to Jesus. I died to the law. Verse 20. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live, I live in the flesh by the faith of the Son of God who loved me. Gave himself up for me. So the law found Jesus guilty. He died. He was cursed. And Paul says, when he was crucified, I was crucified as well. Hallelujah. So there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Well, we've already been crucified. You've already died. It's already paid. We're the other side. We're in resurrection. We're united with Jesus. That's the heart of the whole Christian message. United to Jesus. When Jesus died, we died. When he carried the guilt, our guilt went. We come out free the other side. So Jesus bore the full curse of the law. We died to the law. J.B. Phillips translates it, As far as the law is concerned, I may consider myself that I died on the cross with Christ. My relationship with law is over. I can't be condemned. I've already been crucified. It's done. It's finished. Jesus paid the full price. So he redeemed us from the curse of the law. He brings us out from under the law. And then it says this, you were redeemed from the law in order that we might be, receive adoption as sons. All right, adoption. Adoption is a wonderful 
New Testament word. Adoption. Paul's very fond of it. He uses it five times in three epistles, being adopted. It's a most wonderful thing. Now, we often thrill to justification, but if you like, adoption is even more wonderful. Uh, we, we love, we love uh, justification because it's like, it's just as if I'd never sinned. And to know that I've been justified freely as a gift. It's the, one we, it's the thing we first love. It's when we sing those songs about, I am justified before the throne of God above. I have a strong, a perfect plea. You know, it's like, I'm accepted. I'm, ex- I'm, re- I'm justified freely as a gift. We love justification. But, you know, adoption's even more wonderful. J.I. Packer, famous uh, writer, wonderful scholar, he says this, the highest privilege that the gospel offers is adoption, higher than justification. It's the greatest privilege the gospel provides. What's he saying? Well, justification is wonderful. I mean, we all celebrate it. I can't thank God enough for the day I suddenly saw justification by faith. We're celebrating this year 500 years since Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to that door in that church in Wittenberg. What, what was that all about? Well, he was a monk. You know what happened? Martin Luther is a fascinating character. He, he was, his father had tra- paid him to be trained to be a lawyer. He's going to be a lawyer. And he's walking one day, and lightning strikes. And he's utterly terrified. He thinks he's going to die. I mean, literally, it's lightning, boom, right there. And uh, he's on the floor, and he cries out to some saint, I said, I'll become a monk, I'll become a monk. He's just terrified, he's going to die. So he becomes a monk. But he's terrified of God. And he thinks, how can I ever get right with God? How can you be holy enough for God? And then he's working, he's quite a brilliant man, so when he becomes a monk, after a while, they arrange for him to become a lecturer of New Testament, because he, he can understand the Greek, and so, come on, you start teaching, you start teaching to the other monks the New Testament. Well, he doesn't know God at all. He's just scared of God. In fact, he begins to read about the righteousness of God. And that thought, the righteousness of God, terrifies him. In fact, he recorded, I hate God. Because how can I ever achieve this righteousness? How can I ever get good enough for God? And in those days, the church was totally confused. The Roman church was completely confused. And they used to do things to try and get rid of your sin. And so he went to St. Peter's in Rome. He lived in Germany. He made the journey to Rome. Uh, and he said, he went up the, uh, the St. Peter's church, all the steps going up on his knees. You, that, that's just one of the things you do to get holy. You pray a prayer on every, on every step. You're just trying to get holy. And he got to the top and he thought, I don't know if I'm any more holy. And, and he's, he's looking at all this. How do you get acceptable? And then he suddenly saw what the New Testament teaches, justification by faith. That if you believe, you put your confidence in Jesus, he declares you righteous as a gift. And it changed history. That one guy saw it. And, and Europe began to come alive with this great, great gospel. Tyndale printed it in English. Others printed it in German. And it went right across Europe. Hey, this is the good news. Justification by faith. We're righteous as a gift. Changed the whole thing. Changed everything. 
that we're not trying hard to please and impress God. We've found someone else who's already impressed him, and we're hidden in him. Hallelujah. We're declared righteous. Justification is wonderful. So we love justification. It's like the judge says, not guilty. That's it. And the Bible says, through the blood of Jesus, my conscience is cleansed. It's great to wake up with a good conscience, isn't it? Great to put your head on the pillow, got a good conscience. Because my conscience has been cleansed. Thank you, Father. It's wonderful. Not because of what I did, but because of what he did. He justified me. So we love justification. It's like the judge says, okay, all your guilt's paid for. Run along. Thank you, judge. So justification is great. Redemption is great. Redemption speaks of, it's a slavery word. Justification is a, a, a law word, legal, court. Redemption's like the, like the slave market. You, you go to the slave market, you're, you're a slave, someone's got to pay. Otherwise you're a slave. For the rest of your life, it means you're owned by somebody else. You've got no rights. And the Bible says we're sinners and we're slaves. But redemption says we've been set free. We're set free. It's wonderful because, you know, back in Exodus, it says that they're in the land and the Passover happens, the blood. You put blood on the doorposts and God says, I'm going to judge every family in Egypt. Every firstborn will die. Every home will have someone die in it. God's going to sweep through Egypt. But if you put blood, the lamb's blood around your door, I'll pass over you. It's a picture of justification in the Old Testament. Wonderful. Hallelujah. And so you, you kill this spotless, has to be a perfect lamb. You kill this perfect lamb. You put the blood around your door. God sweeps through with judgment, but passes over wherever he sees the blood. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. That's true of us. Maybe you are covered by the blood. Maybe you're not as we come into this new year. If you put your trust in Jesus, it means we're free. It's free because of what he did. Sometimes you ask them, are you a Christian? You say, well, I try this, I do that. When they answer like that, you know they haven't understood at all. There's nothing to do with what you've done, it's what he's done. The blood of Jesus justifies me. That's great news. But for the Israelites in Egypt, it's like, well, we're still, we're free. God didn't judge us, but they're trying to leave and they hit the Red Sea. And they're shut in. We can't, the Red Sea's blocking the way. And it's like they could say, oh no, here comes the Egyptian army. Oh no. Okay, so I'm forgiven. Thanks for forgiveness, but I'm still a slave in the land. And then we know what happens, don't we? The Red Sea opens and they go out through that kind of death and resurrection and they're literally free. They're no longer slaves. They've been redeemed God says, out of Egypt, I call my son. They're, they're set free from slavery. That's what we know as believers. Beloved, that is our experience. Not only are we forgiven, things that gripped us don't grip us any longer. We're free. We're free. We just walk out into freedom. Now, sometimes you have to fight for a bit of freedom. I know when I got saved, when I came through to God, my foul language, which was absolutely disgusting, stopped in a moment. Just stopped. I thought... Wow, that's amazing. I don't talk like that anymore. I tried to give up smoking, which isn't the biggest sin in the world. I wanted to stop. And I, 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 felt, I, I found it difficult. So I, I kind of had to say, I'm going to get free from this because the Bible says I'm free. 
So I don't have to do this. And so I thought, well, I can't imagine coffee, at uh, mid-morning coffee without a cigarette. So what did I do? I stopped morning coffee. I pushed it a bit later in the day. I pushed it later in the day. And I got myself down to like only five a day. And then I thought to myself, if I can just, if I can live a whole day in only five, I can stop the whole thing. And so I stepped into freedom. Took me a few months, but I got into freedom. See, we are free. We are free. Whatever. You know, some of us are into all kinds of nastiness. God's redeemed us from slavery to sin. He's set us free. We have to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, but God is at work in us to free us. All right? So redemption's great. So we're no longer guilty, we're no longer slaves, but adoption. Adoption's like the judge saying, okay, you're not guilty. How would you like to come home and be my son? That's a bit different, eh? There's a guilty man in, in the court. You're not only not guilty, I'd like to adopt you. I'd like you to become part of my home. I'd like to bring you right into my heart. That's what we're talking about here. Jesus died. He came under the law to set us free from law and that we might be adopted as sons. Right? So adoption is a New Testament word. It is saying God brings us right into his family. It's legally binding. It's absolutely secure. Now, again, just to try and help us, adoption in the New Testament, in the Roman culture, was different to us. It's lovely when people adopt babies today. Beautiful thing that people do. They adopt babies. This isn't about that. What they did in Roman culture was they adopted mature people. Now, it's Christmas, so Ben-Hur will be on television undoubtedly somewhere. So many of us know the story of Ben-Hur, okay? So Ben-Hur is a model of what happened. That was a typical, that's what, what happened in Ben-Hur, if you don't know the story, it's a terrific story, actually. So this guy has had a bad time, he's a slave, all right? We won't bother how he got there. He's a slave, he's a galley slave. He's going to die. Uh, you know, that's it. You keep rowing until you drop dead. And that's Ben-Hur. He's just there. But actually, the senator, who happens to be the admiral of the fleet, is on his boat, his ship. And, and, and he somehow sees something in this guy that kind of stirs him. And when they go into battle, you remember the story, he arranges for his chained link to get broken. So that actually... He's free, though he's still sitting there as a galley slave. And then they go into the battle, which is a pretty exciting bit of the movie. Uh, and they go into the battle, and they ram another ship, and Ben-Hur breaks free, and then their ship's going down. They're in trouble. They're on fire and all sorts of stuff. And the admiral is hurled into the sea, and Ben-Hur, good old Charlton Heston, he sees him and throws himself into the sea and saves him. And the story turns, sorry if I'm spoiling it for you, if, if after all these years you've not yet seen it, but I would encourage you, it's a fabulous movie. Anyway, he gets on a raft and rescues the, the admiral, rescues him. Now the admiral is totally distraught because his boat's gone down, he thinks we've lost the battle. But actually, 
That was like the only boat that went down. They've won the battle. And he's the admiral of the fleet. So he's restored to Rome as one of these great military heroes. Hey, you won that great battle. Well done. The fact that his boat down is not No, you won the battle. Well done. And he's, he's applauded. He goes into Rome. He, he has this great reception in Rome. And he turns to this former slave and says, I adopt you. I adopt you. So it's not about babies. When we say adoption, we're talking about babies. In that era, they would tend to adopt someone who greatly impressed them. And they adopted them with a view to the future, to secure their property, their name, their prestige. This is a great guy. He's the sort of guy I would love to inherit all that I own. That's how it worked. That's adoption in the Bible. This guy, I'd like him to inherit everything. And so you'll find in Roman history, Julius Caesar, I've just read a whole series of books about Caesar, incredible man, phenomenal guy, and gained terrific power. And when he becomes powerful, and he said, well, what's going to happen to this great empire? I mean, he's conquering nation after nation. He's an incredible soldier, and he's become emperor. He's the man. What's going to happen? I'm getting older. I'm getting older. And he really thinks Octavian is his greatest soldier. He loves Octavian. So what happens? He adopts Octavian, who becomes the next Caesar. Julius Caesar hands over to Octavian, who becomes Caesar. He's adopted him. He's adopted him into the family. And then Octavian, he adopted Tiberius. Tiberius adopted Caligula, whose uncle adopted Nero. That's how they did it. how they kept it in the family. This guy, he's really impressive. I'll adopt him. He'll become like my son. He'll inherit the whole thing. That's biblical adoption. Like Ben-Hur, like these Caesars, in fact, it was so legally binding, absolutely legally binding, that one, at one time, I've forgotten which one of it was, one of them fell in love with an actual blood daughter of the previous Caesar and wanted to marry her. But you can't because you're her brother. I've adopted you, you're her brother. And it was so legally binding, they had to fight a huge battle to get another law passed so that they could marry her. It's totally legally binding. You're like my son. You inherit everything. It's all yours. That's what Bible adoption is speaking about. Now, the wonder of the grace of God is this. They adopted people who impressed them. You know, Ben-Hur, my, you're incredible. You saved me. You're strong. You're courageous. You're wise. Or looking at the next uh, emperor. Yeah, you're the man, Octavian. He's a very impressive soldier. I want you as my son. I want you to adopt. I want you to have the whole. You be the next Caesar. You're impressive. For us, no, no. In the Bible, it says, in love, he predestined us before the world began. In love, according to his what? Glorious grace. I didn't impress anybody. I'm not sure you did. But in Christ, we are adopted as though we were impressive. And we come right into the family of God 
and it's legally binding. You can't break it. It's a done deal. I am an adopted child of God. You know, new birth is something creative. This, this metaphor is saying, no, this is the legal perspective. God has taken you out of that. He's taken all your, all your poverty is done away with. All your debt is gone. You inherit his riches. All your nothingness is gone. You inherit his stature, his honor. You're part of God's family. Even now, we're the sons of God. Doesn't yet appear what we shall be. But we, we, we inherit his stature. We inherit this life, this family. We say, Father. And it's not just sentimental language, you know, our Father. I'm in the family, so are you. We've inherited everything. He's the Father. He's our Father. Beloved, he's our Father. He's running the universe and he's making everything work together for good for those who love him and are called into this whole thing. So we don't need to fear what's happening to our nation, what's going to happen to Brexit, and what's going to happen. Oh gosh, I don't know. Hey, God's running the world. And he's our Father. And we're in legally binding relationship. Can't be broken. We're in this standing with him. We, we inherit everything because of his glorious grace. Now, just before we finish here this morning, notice this, the context. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might become fully adopted sons. Hallelujah. So it's in the context of his sending his son. All right, so we've got a model of what a son looks like. We're being adopted into sonship, but Jesus provides the spotless, perfect model. He is the one. God sent his spotless son. He showed us how to relate to the Father. You see, in Jesus' life, you just see him living with the Father. And although he was born under the law, in meeting him, you don't so much meet someone who's all finickety about law, you meet someone who is always pleasing the Father. That's my aim, to please him. That's all that drives me. This is my meat, to do the will of him who sent me. That's all I want to be, that's all I want to do. His whole life has lived like that. They say, all oh, the crowds are wanting you, Jesus. He withdrew to be with his Father. Again and again. Where's Jesus? Oh, he's praying again. He's with his Father. I always want to please him. And when he gets baptized, the father says, this is my son and on whom is all my delight. Jesus lived this father-son relationship perfectly. He modeled it for us. So when we say, well, I'm a son now, I've got a model. I can see how it has to be done. I can look at this life and think, oh yeah, he never offended the father. He never did something that was out of step. He kept close to the Father. He wanted to please the Father. I've got a model. I see a perfect son on display. He's there. Some people despise what's called imitation of Jesus. You know, what would Jesus do? People kind of despise it. But to be honest, there's nothing wrong with it. We can follow Jesus. Paul says, you imitate me as I, imitate, as I follow him. But there's one more thing. He's not only there as an incredible expression of sonship this very final phrase because we are sons he has sent the spirit 
of his son into my heart, crying, Abba, Father. So we not only have a perfect model, which could terrify us. I mean, wow, that's the model. How can I ever? Trying to imitate Jesus can be overwhelming. If, I, if, that's, all, if, Christ, if that's what Christianity is, and lots of people think that's what it is, you just try and imitate Jesus. It isn't. Praise God, there's a model, but praise God, he has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts. We not only have a model, we have supernatural power on the inside, the very spirit of his son in our hearts. Hallelujah. We've got an internal power. That's what God promised in the Old Testament, back there in Jeremiah and Ezekiel. He said, I'll make a new covenant. We just broke bread together. What is it? It's a this is the blood in the new covenant. The covenant promised in the Old Testament. I'll put my spirit in them. I'll put a new heart in them. That's what God said in the Old Testament. The Old Testament was all these rules and regulations. He said, I'll give them a new testament. What is the new testament? I'll put my spirit in their heart. I'll put a fresh motivating source. Fresh energy. Fresh when you come to a decision, you've got inside you now this, this desire, I want to do this. I would like to please the Father. It's inside you. That's why you need to learn to walk in the Spirit, to cultivate fellowship with the Spirit. The Spirit has come to live in us. We can either ignore Him, we can quench Him, we can grieve Him, or we can live with this mighty Holy Spirit who gives us new motivations, changes our appetites, from the inside. Christianity ultimately, yes, it's a legal, finished thing. My guilt has been removed. I woke this morning righteous. No condemnation. I shall wake tomorrow morning righteous. No condemnation. And the next morning righteous. No condemnation until I drop dead. Righteous. No condemnation. Why? Jesus died in my place. He took my guilt completely. It's all over. Finished. But it's not only legal, it's experiential. He put the spirit of his son in my heart, crying, Abba, Father. The kind of cry, it's sort of, I feel at home with Father. Talk to, go into the inner room, Jesus said, shut the door, talk to your father. He's your father. Sometimes people say, Dad, I find a bit nervous with Dad. It's kind of, it's a bit, I don't know, it's a bit too... English concepts of dad, I don't know. I remember once my, my, one of my sons, when he was a very little boy, he ran into the room, sat on my lap, put his arms around my neck and said, hello, darling dad. <laughs> I sometimes remember that phrase when I'm praying. <laughs> darling dad. I love it in India when grown-up men still call their fathers daddy. It'd be strange in our English culture. But I've often seen it in India. It's kind of hugely respectful. And ever so affectionate. They still call him daddy as the years slip by. We call God daddy. Abba. Abba. I was in Tel Aviv airport once and I saw a guy walking across the airport. I saw his little boy, I don't know how old he was, three, four, running after him going, Abba, Abba, Abba. I thought, oh, Father. That, that's a kid calling out to his father. We have the Spirit in our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And we need to live in the Spirit. We need to enjoy the fellowship of the Spirit.
Because now, when Jesus rose from the dead, what was one of the first things he said? He said this. Go tell my brothers. Now, he never said that before. Before the cross, he said, I don't call you slaves anymore. I call you friends. But after the cross, he said, go tell my brothers. I mean, it's a triumphant shout. My brothers. What do you mean? What have they done to earn brotherhood? Well, I told him I wasn't with him. What did you do? I said, no, I've never heard of him. I've never met him. They all ran away. They all ran away. Peter said, I don't know him. I'm not with him. Go tell my brothers. This, this waste of time. Yes, yeah, my brother now. It's like David went out, smashed Goliath's head. Well, he's cut it off. Took it back. And David, by killing Goliath, turned an army of losers into an army of winners. They had done nothing. Nothing. But he took Goliath's head off. Now they're winners. Jesus, <laughs> Jesus did it. We're coming up to Christmas, dear friends. Go tell my brothers. We're brothers now. We're inheriting. We're, we're, we're adopted into the family. And we have that, the spirit of that breathtaking son in our hearts. That awesome son, that incredibly kind, loving, wise, compassionate. He's on the inside. You get to know him more. Enjoy being in the spirit. Sing, make melody with all your heart. Cultivate relationship with the spirit of Christ that's within you. The Bible says this, walk in the spirit and you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. You will not. In fact, it's what the Greeks call a double negative, which you can't use in English. If you tried to translate it in English, it would, you will not know how. <laughs> walk in the spirit and you most certainly will not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That's what it means. Galatians 5.16. It's like, if we haven't got law, how are we going to live a holy life? Walk in the Spirit. Walk as a son. You're not a slave anymore. The law's that's finished with you. You're a son now. Now enjoy your father. Enjoy the indwelling spirit. The whole trinity is involved. And not only that, and finally, we are heirs of all things. He is bringing many sons to glory. And if sons, then heirs. Joint heirs with Christ. We will inherit all things. It's breathtaking, isn't it, when you ponder it. We're going to inherit all things. All things are yours, Paul says. All things. We read in Romans 8, the whole world is suffering. It's like in childbirth. Like the world is under a curse. It's in childbirth. It's, you know, there's pain and then there's pain to purpose. I've had five, I've had five, my wife has had five kids. That's quite a you know, subtle difference there. She's had five kids. When I first, our first three, I wasn't allowed anywhere near. You know what it's like? You may not. I'm that age group. You go there, you present your wife, they say, thank you, Mr. Virgo. And they go through it. The fifth, fourth one, I was allowed to stay in. I thought, why am I allowed to be present? But I'd seen these movies where I guys keel over, you know, they see it. So I thought, take care, Terry, you know. So I'm standing back, you know. And then I survived, I survived. So the fifth one, I was there. I saw it. I thought, mm. I thought I'll never ever speak roughly to my wife again. <laughs> there is pain to purpose. 
And the Bible says that the woman travels, but when the child is born, when the child is born, and that's what, it uses that language in Romans 8. It says in Romans 8, the whole creation is in turmoil, turmoil, earthquakes, volcanic activity, ice changing, all sorts of, the whole earth, that's the language that's used. And it's waiting for what? It's waiting for the full demonstration of the sons of God. And, and even global universal history is waiting for this full expression. Well, even now we're the sons of God. It doesn't yet appear what we shall be. When he appears, whoa, we'll be like him. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we'll be like, it'll be visible. What has already happened will become visible. Even now we're the sons of God. It doesn't yet appear. We'll get that full adoption, a full adoption even of our bodies, transformed, renewed bodies, inheriting the new earth, the new heavens in a new body. It's good news, eh? And when you get to my age, you think, oh, a new body, that will come in handy. <laughs> Hallelujah. We are his sons forever. Okay, so beloved, as we come up to Christmas, I just want us to get the big view. The big view. It's not just about mistletoe. It's not just about Christmas turkeys. It's not even just about a stable and shepherds and little children with stuff around their heads. It's about God who came into this world. God sent forth his son, born of a woman. God became a man. Born, not visiting, born. <laughs> Amazing. God born of a woman, born under the law. So he could redeem us who are under the law. Get us out from that, that, pre, that temporary thing. Get out from under the law that we might be adopted as sons. Because we're sons. We have the spirit of his son in our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, hallelujah. Let's just pray.